people in politics are either plumbers who, you know, get things done, or they're priests who give you pure, unadulterated ideology. And there is clearly a appetite for priests. Hello, I'm Serena Kaczynski, the digital editor of The New Statesman, and welcome to the second episode of The New Statesman's special New Times podcast, where we explore the themes and ideas raised by our special New Times issue. With me today are Vince Cable, a former Secretary of State for Business, who was a Liberal Democrat MP for an impressive 18 years, and Jason Cowley, the editor of The New Statesman. Vince, in your excellent piece for our New Times issue, you talk a lot about a crisis of the centre-left and within social democracy. What do you think lies at the root of that, both in Britain and in Europe as a whole? Well, there is a specific British problem with the collapse, internal collapse of the Labour Party and the virtual disappearance of my own, at least in Parliament. Uh, But this is widespread, and in the article I quote the academic work, which shows how social democratic parties have retreated. Why is it? Um, Well, I think a mixture. I mean, a lot of social democratic parties relied on a traditional urban working class base, which has gone for kind of structural economic reasons. Uh, I think a lot of them... Uh, overpromised in a way, um, the Blairite revolution um, simply wasn't able to cope with the the fallout from a major uh, crisis of financial capitalism. Uh, people became disillusioned and and also compromised uh, in order to be in government. Made a whole set of you know pacts with the devil. Um, you know Clinton, Blair became too friendly to bankers. Um, you know, my party made promises we couldn't deliver. So I think there was a, a, com- a sort of disillusionment when it became clear that social democratic parties simply couldn't handle uh, a major crisis in the system of the kind that we have with the banking collapse and its aftermath. Yeah, what was interesting, I, I thought about... Um, the response of the left to the financial crisis or the, a crisis of financial capitalism events as you call it was that Ed Miliband in particular became leader of the Labour Party in 2010 he thought it was and he said this to me it's a social democratic moment this is a, a crisis of capitalism and therefore it, this should be an opportunity for the left for Labour but it, but it proved to be quite the opposite it, it was an opportunity for the right and we entered a period of what fiscal retrenchment rather than anything else. Do you, what, what, why wasn't it a social democratic moment? No, no obvious easy explanation, but I draw some parallels with what happened in the 1930s because you had a similar set of circumstances around about 1930-31. You'd have thought that people would have turned to Labour and what was left of the Liberals, but they didn't. And you got Baldwin. Uh, and well, we had a ha- national government, didn't And we? we had a national government that was essentially Tory. But I think what, what happened is that in, in these crisis situations, first of all, politics becomes very polarised and it becomes difficult to be the sensible middle of the road, getting the best of both worlds type of politician. I think also people perhaps become frightened uh, and also they become inward-looking. Foreigners are to blame, that kind of scapegoating that we've seen around the arguments on 
uh, immigration, uh, both here, United States, many parts of Europe. So for the social democratic parties that are reasonable, that are appealing to a sense of positive view of human nature, are sort of optimistic about incremental change, these things are very difficult to sustain in a crisis world. The period from, say, 97, again, until, until the crisis, was a period of where we wanted to keep things as open as possible, mm. free-flowing capital, mm. but also free movement of people. That seems to me to be coming to an end, which is one of the, which is one of the themes of our, our New Times issue. So you've got the, the shift inside the Labour Party to the left. This seems to me to be permanent. Mm. And you've got the end of this form of capitalism. Now, you, you don't like the word neoliberalism, but nevertheless, something, something is changing, isn't it? Yes, and there has been a, a reaction in many countries. Uh, I think that the, the, the argument which isn't yet resolved is whether there is now a kind of fundamental going back from this increasingly int integrated, globalised world, which was sort of essentially liberal and economic policy, whether, whether there's a sort of headlong retreat from that, or whether we we have one or two aspects of it which people can no longer deal with. I mean, one of which is financial markets, which clearly was out of control. And there is an attempt now to control it and effectively to nationalise a lot of financial transactions for very obvious reasons. Because you know, national, national government is where power lies. And if you're trying to regulate, you have to do things at that level. And the other area of retreat, of course, is around migration. Um, I mean, I think this is real. I, I, whatever comes out of the Brexit process, I think most of us now accept. I mean, I, I accept. I saw Rachel Reeves, very sensible, moderate Labour person, yesterday arguing that um, we just have now to accept that migration will be managed. It doesn't need to say it, we need to be xenophobic and have closed doors, but people's tolerance of unlimited immigration, I think, has gone. Yeah. It's very hard for those on the centre-left to articulate the argument about, around immigration, as we've seen within the Labour Party. What uh, prescription, what, what approach to that would you advocate for yourself? And how do you think you reconcile trying to reach out to the northern working class leave voters with the liberal London elite, which is the current paradox that the Labour Party faces? Yes, I, I, I don't see the argument polarised quite like that. I mean, I know the Brexit um, vote has been rationalised as, you know, the southern metropolitans versus the, the excluded northerners, but not having gone round the country, most of the people I encountered who were anti-immigration were older people uh, in the south of England who were pretty comfortable, but they read the Mail and the Express and they didn't like this changing world. So it was a sort of peculiar coalition of, you know, dispossessed, angry uh, former working class people and the kind of lower middle class with its nationalistic prejudices and nostalgia for the empire. But whichever way, uh, it's a powerful alliance and that is where the centre of gravity of public opinion is. So what do you do about it? I think, I, I think simply trying to defend unrestricted immigration is impossible. Uh, intellectually, politically, and possibly morally as well, actually. So I think what we do have to do is to make a reasoned case for um, skilled, high-level migration for university students um, in a more qualified way than has been the case in the past. And I would certainly accept in the context of Brexit, 
but a lot of my party colleagues wouldn't agree with this, that we have to concede that um, the management of labour flows is going to be part of the deal. Vince, just to touch on Jeremy Corbyn, you mentioned in your piece that compromise in politics has now become contemptible. How much do you attribute that to the rise of Corbynism and possibly the uh, the legacy of the Chilcot report as well? Do you think that is partly fueling this this shift away from pragmatic politics? Yeah, I think you you've hit the nail on the head. I I, I think this whole argument is. Is focused too much on Corbyn personally. I mean, had John McDonald or John Trickett or somewhere else had stood at that vital moment, they would now be the darling of the far left in the same way. And in, and and of that particular stable, he's actually one of the weaker horses. He, he does have a cult of personality around him. Though, yes, it isn't really a cult of personality. Appearance I, I, goes down a storm around yeah, the country. But, uh, but John McDonald ran before Vince and lost. Diane yeah, Abbott. Yes, ran he was just the right man in the right place at the right time. And it was a. It, but he's, but he is an accidental politician. He's an accidental leader. I think that is rather important. But the, anyway, your, your question which is right, which is why has he acquired this cult status? And I think it is, as you say, it is partly a reaction against the nature of politics, which does involve in government compromise. It's a dirty business. Um, And Ed Balls, actually, in his recent book, captures this beautifully well, and I'm very much on the same wavelength as he is. I mean, one way I put it is that people in politics are either plumbers who, you know, get things done and get their hands dirty, or they're priests who give you pure, uh, unadulterated ideology. And there is clearly a appetite, amongst, particularly amongst young people, who feel let down in many ways for priests who will tell them what they want to hear, regardless of whether it's got any connection with government or any potential for implementation. I think it's rather dangerous that large numbers of people and particularly young people, have just disengaged from politics as such, which is, I think, essentially what's happening in the Corbyn phenomenon. It's true. I mean, there's a reason why Jeremy Corbyn gets compared to the High Sparrow from Game Mm. of Thrones. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but this sort of puritanical, zealous, and eventually politicised figure who wreaks some degree of havoc. Well, it has two dangers, one of which is that somebody of that kind, and I, I don't think it is actually him, just becomes a highly successful demagogue, and you've got Trump, I think, is a more dangerous example, and they do terrible harm. The more likely problem is that they simply become like a religious cult. They attract a lot of supporters, but they have no connection with the political process. And, and by default, the people on the other side, the right, who are regrouping, they've got, they've got a, a very effective leader, um, just dominate the political process. You said in your piece you made the prediction that if he stays as leader, which looks likely, the party looks likely to poll between 15 and 20 percent of the vote nationally. Um, I mean, do you think that? Uh, do you stand by that prediction? And also, is that an opportunity for your party, the Liberal Democrats, to move back into that space? I mean, you've just had your party conference. Was the mood robust, positive there? Well, I suppose when I quoted those numbers, I was extrapolating from what we think of as being currently poll numbers. And, of course, the position could be more dramatic than that. You saw what happened in Scotland. You you, you could get into a position where the slide is so serious that the, you're talking about a virtual wipeout. But I... I you know, but certainly a substantial reduction is is likely, I think. 
Um, could my party fill the vacuum? Uh, w I would sincerely hope that we do recover. There is a vast unrepresented swathe of opinion, which is broadly liberal with a small L and, and in favour of a uh, social democratic agenda that is not currently finding a voice, and I would hope that my party can fill it. But it's not going to happen in a big and dramatic way. And I think what we have now to confront is the possibility that Theresa May is actually colonising um, what she would regard as the middle ground, uh, and that this kind of mixture of, you know, pro-business but not in a rabid, um, laissez-faire way, um, socially liberal but up to a point, um, reflecting at least some of the prejudices of Middle England, the male leadership. Do you think, Ben, sometimes, um, one of the things that struck me, um, actually Corbyn first, he seems to be, what he's done, he's, he's unlocked something hmm. that seems to me that's been repressed. I mean, clearly, there's a hardcore two, three, four hundred thousand people mm. who are longing for a, a stronger, more robust left-wing alternative to what the Labour Party's been been offering. And somehow, somehow, Corbyn has unlocked this and inspired them. But his positions, for example, he's an open borders man on immigration, but he's an economic protectionist. Seems a, a contradictory position to be after the Brexit vote. Similarly, you mentioned Theresa May, and at times, I think she sounds a bit like you did when you were in government. She talks about an industrial strategy, she's talking about corporate governance, she's talking about having workers on boards. Is, I mean, do you hear some of your own language being repeated? Yes, I do. And, and is that why you think she's moving? Yes, I'm, and I'm pleased that she's doing it, yeah. so I think those are the right things to do. Um, so she must have listened to you? Uh, well, maybe, but oh, certainly her advisors did, maybe she didn't, but... Um, but I think the people around her do sense, I think, that she is potentially the the kind of centrist leader of the country, you know, the Mrs. Merkel-type figure. Um, she's unlikely to make the same mistake on refugees, I guess. But, but so, so, so a Christian Democrat? A Christian Democrat. I don't know whether she's very Christian or not. Well, she's the daughter. daughter of a vicar. Uh, yes, but, but that, that kind of conservatism... Mm. I'd have thought... So steady, uh, pragmatic... Uh, yeah, steady, pragmatic, you know, to some extent blowing with the wind on a lot of issues, Not certainly not dogmatic about economic policy, mixed economy, um, working with the grain of the market but with a hefty dose of state intervention where necessary, uh, knocking the rough edges off capitalism, dealing with extreme inequalities, not fraternising with the rich and not indulging the bankers. I mean, you can see that there's a wide spread of public opinion who will really like that. You seem to find it quite a well, well, there's quite a lot of element to that. No, I don't think I'm ever likely to be in the same even, party even or government as Theresa May, but, but I can see the potential for her... Uh, her definition of centrism really flourishing in the and current are, and environment. And are we seeing a resurgence of interest in the state? What, what, the, what the state can, can achieve, in mm. as you, mm. you put it, knocking the edges off capitalism, mm. but also the state as a final guarantor of security? Because what a lot of people mm. want above all else is security and order at the moment. Yeah. Yes, and you know, she, in some ways she is a big state conservative. Mm. Um, and this shows itself in ways that I feel comfortable with but also um, very intrusive I mean her, her record over five years on 
uh, you know, Home Office surveillance and Snoopers Charter and all that Civil kind of liberty. thing. This is somebody who believes in a very powerful state acting mm. in a benign way because it is acting in our common interest for security. And that's... Is that a definition of Mayism, do you think? Do you think you're settled on an early definition there? <laughs> it's quite well put, I think. Well, maybe. I, I mean, from my recollection of her, she's not very uh, interested in abstract philosophical mm. debate. And so you're not likely to acquire isms. But there is a package there, which I think people looking at it from the outside could see as a quite politically compelling, particularly when the opposition is disorganised um, and not, not offering anything coherent instead. So in that sense, from what you're saying, um, are the new times associated with the ascendancy of the right, just as they were at the end of the 70s into the early 80s? Yes, and I'd go back to my analogy with the 1930s, where you know, the national government, Baldwin, you know, represented the mood of the time, which you may think is strange, given that they'd been through such a horrific crisis. Um, and, and as yet, we, we've had no answer to that from the centre and the left. Yes, I think Labour, what, Ooh. fell, was it 1931 election? They were down to 52 seats. Yes. I mean, at the end of your piece, Vince, you actually sort of say, you know, we're on our way to decades of Tory rule and you make it sound quite grim, but you're sounding almost quite positive no, about no, it No, no, I'm not at all positive about it. And I can, well, there I, was I a slight have... gleam in your eye, Vince, <laughs> when you were talking about... No, no, I'm not Mrs. at all May. positive about it and I do worry about it. And the fact that she can humanise it and make it attractive makes me even more worried, actually. Right. Um, mm. No, I think there are alternative models and, we're, I mean, we're, we're struggling to find them, but I'm just over Canada was one. Uh, where you know the you, Trudeau liberal, the Trudeau yes. liberal. I mean, it's an very extraordinarily. It, it, it is, and it's 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 very specific to that situation. But you and know, Hillary? that's the kind of hope we need. Yes, well, she is rather crucial to all of this. I mean, she may not be a great candidate, but uh, it does represent that strand in um, you know centre left opinion. And if that goes, um, goodness knows what. Some, some might say that her candidacy is possibly doing even more harm to centre-left, to the image of centre-left politics in a way. It's not a view I personally share, but it, it's mm. definitely one that... Why? Because she's seen as a relic of the old order. And old uh, allied to Wall Street, you know, this idea of corrupt Hillary, etc. In some senses, that's damaging what Obama's progressive America stood for. Potentially. Yeah, well, Obama was, is, is a, a great character I think actually and he, he's been I think underestimated in terms of what he's achieved and what he stands for and she isn't quite of that caliber but if you you know leave out some of the seedier bits of the of the Clinton operation she's still a very significant figure and somebody we should actually identify with. Could it be though that and I'll, we'll end on this that Trump is more in tune with the times? I mean, he's a he's an isolationist. He's a protectionist. He seems to be against free trade. He's a xenophobe. Hmm. Well, it's interesting you group those things together, and it goes back to one of our earlier points of discussion. I mean, we are seeing in this country a reaction against kind of global markets in finance and against unrestricted migration. But I see no evidence people want to tear up open trade. For example, well, I he mean, seems to do that, people, he? well, he does, uh, and that's. But America is not an, an open economy. There's always been that straight. That is a very particular American phenomenon, and I'm not actually sure that that will have wide resonance outside the particular demographic he's aiming for, which is you know the declining working class areas of people like Ohio and yes. Pennsylvania. It's, it's a very, very particular thing. But outright protectionism. 
doesn't really have any echoes in, in Europe as a whole, let alone in Britain. Will that permeate, though? Because obviously he's got this sort of insurgent, anti-establishment mood fueling his candidacy, which we've seen with Corbyn, Sanders, etc. That very much seems to be a very of the time. Yes, as I say, there, there, there are the counter-examples which are encouraging. But I, the sad thing is that one of these demagogues is going to have to break through and disastrously fail in a way before we, mm. we fully learn our lessons and to have the most powerful individual in the world um, playing games with our future is desperately alarming. Which is probably a good way, to, a, a, a pessimistic note. A pessimistic uh, to end, note. But nevertheless a, a resonant one. Thank you, thank you very much. So next up, to discuss the future of the left, we have Mark Steers, the British political theorist and chief executive of the New Economics Foundation, and Neil Lawson, the chair of the left-wing pressure group Compass, both of whom have contributed to our special issue on the future of the left. What I thought was interesting about the pieces that both of you contributed was that they lifted themselves above the nitty-gritty and punch-and-judy nature of British politics and the future of the Labour Party and Corbyn versus the moderates and looked at a sort of alternative future vision of where the left might go. Um, Neil, you mentioned the possibility of a progressive alliance, a coalition of the left across a broader spectrum. Do you think that's actually a possible option for where the left goes next? I think it's the only option. I mean, I, I think the days of expecting or even wanting a kind of majority Labour position, you know, is consigned to the kind of 1945 dustbin. I think those days aren't coming back again. Um, and I don't even actually think it would be a good thing if it did. The idea that in the complexity of the 21st century, of all the dynamism, pluralism, diversity, that any one single organisation has a monopoly of wisdom, you know, and can capture the country. Um, uh, I, th I think it's, you know, it's for the it's for the past. You know, New Labour did it for a while under its big tent. Um, but all the compromises that had to be made with that and all the seeds of, you know, toxicity that's been like been poured into our political system as a consequence of that, uh, which are now exploding everywhere, um, just suggests to me that that's just impossible. I want to see a rich, complex, negotiated future, not one imposed by any single party. Mark, I mean, do you think that there's an arrogance about the left. Neil, you touched on this in your piece as well, that is somehow potentially undermining their attempts to work together. And as you make the point, almost making democracy redundant because we end up with such hegemony of right-wing government and right-wing rule. I think the problem on the left has been, um, you know, for, for a long time, that you get captivated by the short-term nitty-gritty of politics, as you, as you said, and people obsess about who's up and who's down, and we all become criminologists about predicting the nature of the shadow cabinet or what's going to happen at a local uh, by-election or what's going to happen in, you know, in the opinion polls. And that takes us away from some absolutely fundamental questions, which actually operate not at the level of sort of national politics anymore, but partly at a level higher than that, a sort of global level, as we've seen with uh, um, you know, the crisis now in the European Union, uh, as we've seen about issues of migration, as we see issues of climate change. 
and also happening at a, a local level with people's anxieties about their their communities, about their high streets, about the you know, working practices in a very day-to-day -day sense. And it's as if that old level, that sort of national political level, can't capture either the global or the local. Uh, and as a result, we sort of end up obsessing about the wrong things. I mean, do you think that the 20th century notion of the left is redundant per se, and it's being replaced by a much more fragmented, possibly more democratic in a sense that it's based on grassroots movements? Neil? I think it largely is. Um, I think we are, you know, as, as the 20th century was defined by the factory and the command and control model of the factory and the working class knew its place and you had a kind of Fordist system of production of cars and government, that era is clearly going and we're living now in a kind of networked, flatter, potentially, only potentially more egalitarian and democratic network society that will either be a flourishing, beautiful, wonderful democracy or it will be a dystopia controlled by Apple, Google and that's what the political contest of the 21st century is all about. But, but I don't think it's just going to be bottom-up flowering. I mean, in my piece, you know, I talk about 45 degree politics, the angle at which the meeting point between horizontal community, social movement, civil society politics, and the vertical party state politics. And I think we need both of those things. Because otherwise, what you get is the kind of politics of you know of the ice bucket challenge the you know the politics of the firework which just illuminates the sky for a moment and then descends back into darkness again because it doesn't have the party and state structures to sustain it to kind of you know floodlight the area you know ahead of it so i think the challenge is to you know to, to mark's point of the local and the global you know where does the party and the state fit you know, between those things as the way of resourcing, creating the space, some of the ideology, for that to continue in a sustained way. Mark, I mean, you and your piece describe uh, sort of this very, uh, very emotive and quite powerful decline of democracy. You even describe it as being an empty signifier. I mean, are you slightly catastrophizing because everything seems so bleak right now? Or are we really in such a you know in such a terrible state no i think it's really important that we don't shirk from the the darkness and the difficulty of the times in which we live i mean that's the the point i'm really trying to make in the piece is uh, right at the end of the First World War, Max Weber said that you can only succeed as a reformer if you're able to look at realities um, uh, with an unsparing gaze, was his phrase. Really see what is is that confronts you and come up with a plan to be able to tackle them. And I think what, if we take that mission now, I think it doesn't really matter whether you're on the left or on the right or in the centre of politics. The circumstances we're confronted with are extraordinarily difficult and demanding. Uh, and we see that you know, in Britain, but also across the world. People are really scrambling to find answers, um, given the sort of systemic failure of the economic order that we've inherited since the late part of the 1970s. I mean, there, there is so much wrong with the fundamentals of our economic system and the consequences of that for our social life, for our environment and for our political life are so difficult that I think that unless we begin with that sort of clear-eyed truth-telling, then we're never going to make any progress uh, in, in sort of rising to the challenges that we face. So, and that is a really hard lesson for lots of people on the left who like sort of dewy-eyed optimism. I mean, the left is often a place where people say, let's talk about the shining city on the hill or let's talk about owning tomorrow. And that's all well and good, um, but you also need to be able to confront the realities of today. And the realities of today for millions of people are extremely difficult. And that is where I think we have to begin our discussions. 
I mean, it's interesting what you say about this concept of owning tomorrow and, and sort of this idea that failure makes you stronger, failure takes you forward if you're on the left. Uh, and obviously the only sort of example of this where it's been counteracted in government by the Labour Party was under Tony Blair, which took a very pragmatic approach. I mean, what do you think it is about the Blairite legacy that has led to centrism being so exiled from the p current political debate and becoming such a, a dirty word, a dirty sentiment? I'm not sure where to start with that because it's kind of so deep and I think so abiding. I mean, Blairism in its early days had some seeds in communitarianism in stakeholding, which was genuinely interesting. But it kind of became a kind of deracinated form of that politics, um, which kind of hollowed out any kind of virtue and values base, you know, and just embraced kind of modernity in a way that just tried to, to bend to neoliberalism and all the individualism and globalization it didn't try to bend modernity to kind of deep social you know justice and democratic um uh, values it was a one-off possibility after 18 years of Tory rule when there wasn't particularly a left uh, opposition or alternative to to new labor and so it could capture that territory but it didn't capture that territory and dig deeper roots it just kind of like was on the surface of neoliberalism you know and and after 13 years of that people are sick and tired of it you know and that explains jeremy corbyn more than anything it isn't that jeremy's you know the answer to the future necessarily although lots of people think he is it's the fact that people are so turned on by that centrist politics in which the poor get poor got poorer the planet you know the planet continued to burn and it just didn't offer any hope to so many people in in our country now we've got to begin to offer an alternative to that and i think that that comes from as mark was suggesting deep-rooted foundational ideas and organization that are relevant to the 21st century my inspiration is kind of nigel farage in the, in the way that he went away and dug the kind of deep kind of foundations for the politics he wanted to do. A single person, really, who's transformed our country, made transform Europe and the rest of the globe. Now, can we take inspiration from that long-term, deep foundational thinking and activity rather than just skirt around on the surface again? I mean, I think that, 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 I mean, that's very profound. And I, I mean, I think that the, the problem with uh, what happened in, not just in Britain, but you know, across the world in the sort of late 1990s, early 2000s, wasn't actually that we all sort of hunkered down in sort of centrism. I think there were, there were two problems, one of which it took sort of systems change off the agenda. You know, it said that we, we were working with an established economic order and there was nothing you could do about that, you just had to work within it. And that has turned out to be an error. Um, and that goes, I think, very powerfully to what Neil has said. But I also think, uh, here's the paradox in a way, that there was a sort of over-optimism about a lot of what was said at that time. If you remember back to 97, um, the, you know, the, the, the phrase was things can only get better, but, but things didn't get better for a lot of people in lots of you know, deep and profound ways. And so I don't think it was that, that what happened in that period was that people just said, well, let's be centrist and let's be pragmatic and let's be technocratic. It wasn't as simple as that. It's that they thought that they were stuck with an economic system and actually that that economic system would continue to deliver um, more and more sort of profoundly uplifting outcomes for people. And, and that turned out to be a mistake as well. And that's where I'd go back to the sort of the reality confronting nature of the project that we have to engage in now. Is that what was going on, in, especially in the early 2000s, I think, is things were beginning to deteriorate. Um, especially with issues like you know, uh, uh, people's wage packets uh, uh, or communities in decline. Um, and, and people weren't confronting the reality of that in politics. People were confronted with the reality of it in their everyday lives. You knew it. 
if the factory closed down around the corner, or if you were being paid less than you'd been paid last year, or if the high street had become you know, sort of you know, deluged with betting shops and you know, chicken shops. You could see that reality, but nobody in the political world was saying it. And I think that's where that moment has to change now. We have to begin with saying, okay, we know what's going on. Uh, we, we know it's wrong. We know it doesn't work. And let's begin the slow process of rebuilding, uh, but always rebuilding from a position of realism and not rebuilding from a position of sort of empty optimism or kind of negative utopianism. I mean, do you think that policies such as universal basic income, which could make things better potentially for those on the lower spectrum, the lower, scale, lower end of the spectrum, um, do you think those policies like universal basic income could be a rallying call for the left, could help people unite or could bring people into back, you know, back to the left banner possibly? Well, I personally, Compass and myself are kind of, you know, banging the drum for universal basic income because it is a transformative idea, which doesn't just kind of refashion our welfare system. It refashions what we think about people. It builds a, a, a system of social security around the best in people and not the worst. And and even if the robots don't come, you know, our labour market now isn't working because it's, you know, it's just too complex and we put layer upon layer of reform on it. So we need a universal, you know, basic income. But we probably need, you know, a four day week. We probably need to take control of our money supply. We need proportional representation. We need deep, deep, you know, uh, uh, devolution you know of, of our democracy there's a whole series the, 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 the issue is not the policy agenda the policy agenda is quite easy actually the issue is how do you make change happen the issue is agency who's going to do this and this idea that it's just a parliamentary elite that's going to do it is for the birds because that's more 20th century although we need elements of it but what's the agency and is the crisis of neoliberalism and the crisis of social democracy creating the embers of a new agency of an insecure precariat that could come together against the backdrop of a basic income and a four-day week and various other other policies to begin to be the transformative vehicle for our politics. I think that's what New Times is about. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there, there may be pros and there may be cons of UBI as an idea, and, uh, I, and I'm open to that debate. But the idea that policy is the magic bullet by which we transform things, I think, is in fact the fundamental error. Um, because it, it goes right back to where we were at the start of our conversation. It's part of that criminology. You know, it's, it's the what's the news story for this week, or what's going to get covered on the you know on the front page of the Guardian. That that's not going to be big enough to provide the solution to the, to the seriousness of the challenge we face. And so I, I think we've got to wean ourselves away from looking for a magic policy bullet. Of course, come up with good policy ideas and advocate for them and campaign for them. There, there's work to be done in that area, but one can't imagine that policy is going to be the solution. And, and, and Ali Graf, who uh, is a friend of mine from America, who's a community organizer, always used to say to me, look, there's a difference between policy and politics. Uh, and politics can be an answer. People coming together, making demands, working out what the big questions are, building coalitions, building alliances, and actually getting somewhere. Uh, but individual policies kind of come and go. Uh, and you know, if, if all we spend our time in is sort of hunched over computers in, in think tanks trying to come up with another PDF which you want to then God try forbid. and you know, you know, pitch to someone in Portcullis House, it's just not recognizing the scale of the challenge that we face. I suppose it's identifying what shape the, the, that politics might take, basically. And it's very likely that more grassroots, social protest-based politics will form a very intrinsic part of whatever emerges. 
um, from the flames, so to speak. So whether that's called momentum or whatever it's called, the idea that we're going to return to a sort of set parliamentary democracy does appear redundant. I mean, I don't disagree with much of that. I think the only thing to say is, again, a bit like the focusing on policy or the focusing on sort of Westminster ups and downs, focusing on the sort of flashier part of social movements can also be misleading, which isn't to say there isn't a part for them in this process, but the vast majority of people you know, in Britain and in other parts of the world do actually engage in politics, but they don't engage in politics through either you know, old school political parties or new school sort of dynamic social movements. They're doing things which are much more rooted and much more fundamental in their own communities, in their own workplaces, in their everyday life. And again, I guess my kind of clarion call is that if we want answers on the left, that the focus has got to be on what's really going on out there, what experiences are people really having, what challenges are they facing, what answers are they coming up with in the communities in which they live, and how can we stitch that together in the way that Neil described earlier into a broader story. There are sort of flashy, nice, silvery things out there which distract the attention of people like us who care about day-to-day -day politics, and that tends to be Westminster, or a big new policy initiative, or a big rally or a march. But that's not where change is actually going to come from. It's going to come from much more prosaic and everyday experiences which really matter to people in the lives that they lead. And Neil, where do you think change is going to come from? From, from the 45 degree politics, from the Progressive Alliance or some other entity? Well, I kind of agree with most of what Mark said. I think policy can play a more important role sometimes. You know, it was a policy to have a referendum in Scotland you know, and then that opened up a question about what kind of Scot Scotland do you want? What's the nation of a good society? That's why I like a universal basic income, because it opens up the question of what kind of life do you want to lead, you know, and puts the bigger kind of terrain, you know, before us. So I think policy can play a, a bigger role than just as a kind of, you know, in the, in the old formulaic sense. I'm also kind of, while I love all the grassroots bottom-up stuff, and that's where the energy is, and that's where people are playing with new forces of new forms of democracy and economy, there's a great quote from Jody Dean, the American theorist, who says, you know, Goldman Sachs don't care if you own a chicken. You can do all the prefigurative stuff you want, but does it lead to systemic change, which is going to stop the planet burning and the poor getting poorer? So it's the scaling up bit that I'm interested in, and how do we do that? And that's why I'm interested in this notion of 45 degree politics, because I think parties and states can sustain and build all of that grassroots activism. And for me, the Progressive Alliance is not a defensive move, move because we can't beat the Tories without it, and possibly we can't beat the Tories without it, but because it changes forever the nature of our politics. It brings in proportional representation. It brings in pluralism. It brings in a future that's going to be negotiated you know, and, and not dictated by, by anyone. So it's the starting point of a 21st century politics. That's why I'm interested in it. I mean, I think it sounds great. My final question, though, is uh, if the Labour Party can't manage to unite amongst itself, <laughs> is the idea of a progressive alliance possibly slightly uh, a way off, if not uh, a bit too utopian? Well, I think it's a really valid question and we will either see, you know, the rebirth of Labour or its death. You know, to me, I still carry a Labour Party card, but I carry it really lightly. 
Um, to me, the the issue isn't the vehicle necessarily, and what whether it's got a ro- you know what color the rosette on it is you know that's on it is. To me, is 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 there a vehicle that can help carry a transformative politics for the future, which can be a mix of different parties, or it could be new ones. I don't care. I just want to get to the good society and I want to get there quite quickly. And Labour can decide for itself whether he wants to be part of that or whether he wants to be part of the past. I I mean, I think that uh, similarly, uh, I think the key answer has got to be that our powers to predict what happens to political parties is just just really undermined by everything that's gone on in the last Mm. five years, 10 years, 15 years. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen to the Labour Party, Conservative Party, UKIP, Liberal Democrats or the Greens in 18 months' time, let alone in sort of 10 years' time. And that means, I think, if you care about the issues that we've been discussing, the energy has to lie somewhere else. And we've got to start to put together real, powerful, transformative coalitions in the places where people live, which can actually begin the slow, hard work of changing our system. Thank you, Neil and Mark, very much indeed. You have been listening to the New Statesman's New Times Future of the Left special podcast. Our music is Devil with the Devil by the underscore orchestra. And you can find more information about all our other New Statesman podcasts at www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.